This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What's in a name? What's in a name? Names signal a kind of intimacy because they unveil the relational dimension of a person. A person on an island, if they were dropped there when they were a baby and they were raised on this island with no other human connection, would have no need of a name because they would have no access to relationships. And if you think about it, this is probably why throughout human history, it's often been the case that prisoners were stripped of their names. I mean, we can think of the Holocaust where people were given a number. We can think about the beginning of the musical and novel Les Mis where Jean Valjean is known as Prisoner 24601. Names have power. They have power. I remember hearing a story in a study about the significance of names where there was a family that meant to name their daughter Tempest after Tempest Bledsoe, the actress from the Cosby show. I think she played Rudy, but there was a spelling error and they ended up naming her Temptress. And so, and so the study followed her life and you can imagine what kind of life she led with a name like Temptress. But names have power for good as well. I mean, you can think about how God changes Abram's name to Abraham or how Jacob, which means deceiver, becomes Israel, which means triumphant for God. We saw last week at the baptism that the name Francis is now irrevocably tied to the baby's baptismal identity. If you read the book of Genesis closely, you'll see the prominence of naming. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for name, which is Shem, appears 864 times in 771 verses. The first five books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, contain about 30% of the usage of the word name, 250 occurrences there. Out of those 250 occurrences in Genesis through Deuteronomy, 111, that is 44% of those occurrences, appear in the book of Genesis. By the end of the book of Genesis, virtually everything has a name. During the creation poem, God has named the day and the night and the sun and the moon and so many other things about the world. Adam is given the task very early on to name the animals, which is a task that God delegates to him as a divine image bearer. He gets to name his wife, Eve. One character, throughout the book, the parents name children and people name places. One character, Hagar, the former slave of Abraham and Sarah, who is exploited in order to give Abraham a son, after God saves her and Ishmael in the wilderness, she actually gives God a name, which is El Roy, the God who sees me. This is a beautiful testament to God's faithfulness, but we should be careful. It's not his proper name. This is a name that's ascribed to him by a creature based on what he did for her. In other words, at the end of the book of Genesis, Virtually everyone and everything has a name except the creator who was the main actor from the first chapter of the book. He was at work creating the world. He was at work judging the world through the flood and saving Noah. He was at work judging the world at Babel and calling Abraham out of his pagan context to become the father of the covenant people. He was at work preserving Joseph to preserve the people of Egypt and the future nation of Israel. But who is this God? The biblical authors force us to wait until Exodus chapter 3 to find out. 
And when we pick up the reading from Exodus, Moses is in a place of relative obscurity. He has gone from being a member of Pharaoh's house, drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter from the waters, given a place of privilege in his society, to now being in a place where he's a nomadic shepherd in the middle of nowhere. And the tradition is that during this story where he stumbles across this bush, he's out looking for one of his lost sheep. And he turns aside because he sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed. And from that bush, God speaks to him, Moses, Moses. And he says, here am I. And from there, God commissions Moses to be his spokesman to deliver Israel from their enslavement in Egypt. What I like about this story, though, is as if the burning bush wasn't enough for Moses, he resists God. In our reading today, I wish we had read the whole story. He actually resists God a couple times throughout this story. But in our reading this morning, his main resistance is when he goes to Israel and he says, God sent me, they'll ask, who, which God, what's his name? And Moses doesn't know his name. And so in response to this objection, God reveals it to Moses. I am who I am. I am who I am. Now, initially, this name feels like a tautology, doesn't it? I am who I am. Yeah, that would make sense. But actually, this is a really radical and profound name. Because for pagans, the gods exist in the world. In pretty much all the pagan creation myths, unlike the creation poem of Genesis 1, the gods don't create from nothing. They create in a way that kind of they use material that already exists. And all the gods in the stories, they have beginnings and they have endings. They can be killed by other gods. They can kill other gods. But Jews and Christians worship, I am who I am. So God doesn't exist like we do or like the pagan gods do. Rather, God is existence itself, the existence in which we participate. And this is what St. Paul gets at in Acts 17 when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. And so this name, which seems so simple at the beginning, I am who I am, actually becomes really profound, telling us much about God. It tells us that he's eternal, that there's no beginning or end. If God had a beginning or end, he would be just another creature constrained by finitude like we are. But because he's eternal, it also means he's immutable. That is, he's unchanging. He doesn't change. I am who I am is a statement about his nature. It's stable. It's unwavering. And this makes God trustworthy. The same God who we've seen act throughout Genesis. The same God who we see calling Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery is the same God who became incarnate and died on the cross for us. And he's the same God who will be present to us through the sacrament of the altar this morning. And he's the same God who was present last week and regenerated Francis at his baptism. As St. James says, there is no variation or shadow of turning in God. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And this leads us to another fact about God, which is that he is impassable. When we affirm that God is impassable, we affirm that he does not suffer on account of the actions of creatures. In other words, you can try all you want to hurt God, and you'll never be able to. 
You can try to stymie him. You can try to frustrate him, but you won't. And that means that God doesn't change his mind about us. That when he reveals who he is through the death of his son, he doesn't wake up the next day and go, ah, well, I didn't mean it for so-and-so. No, he always means it. So God is eternal, immutable, and impassable. But this story affirms one more truth about God, which is that he is relational. For whatever reason, God, out of the overflow of love between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, not only created us, but loves us and wants us to be in communion with him forever. I am who I am tells us not only that the God of the Bible is unlike pagan gods, He's also, like, he's also not like the unreachable and abstract God of the philosophers and the deists. He's a God who is love. Now, if their story is our story, something we've been saying the past couple of months, then Moses' response to the burning bush, his response to God's revelation of his name can become instructive for us, both in a positive and a negative sense. Moses shows us some things that we should do, and he also shows us some things we should not do. First, there's the fact that he turns aside from the mundane to place his mind on the things of God. That's admirable, right? If it's true, he's chasing after a lost sheep. Could be so caught up in his mind that as he walks past the bush, maybe he didn't even notice it, just keeps walking. Or maybe even worse, maybe he could have noticed the bush and said, well, I've really got to get to that sheep. Cuts into my bottom line. But no, Moses stops and he listens to God. Moses, the shepherd, becomes a good example of what Jesus says in, chapter, in John, that my sheep know my voice. He becomes a sheep. A second way that Moses is instructive for us is when he responds to God's call. If the bush says, Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am, which in the Hebrew is hanene, which is a great word to say. This is a common response in the Old Testament. You remember the story of Eli and Samuel. Samuel's a little boy who lives in the temple, and God keeps calling him in the middle of the night, and Samuel keeps waking up, and he doesn't know what to say, and so he goes to Eli, and he says, what should I do? And Eli says, you tell the voice, here am I. Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah gets transported to heaven. He sees the heavenly worship happening around the altar. And he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel purifies his lips with a coal from the altar. And then God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. So when God calls us, when God gives us instruction then we say, here am I, which is a signal of our open posture to him. It's about making ourselves completely open to his direction. It's the same prayer that our Lord prays in the garden, thy will be done, not my will be done. It's the same prayer our lady says to the angel Gabriel, be it done unto me according to thy word. Here am I. A third way that Moses is instructive for us is in his obedience to God's command. What does God tell him to do? Take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. Moses was in the presence of God. So he sheds his earthly or profane garments so that he can stare into the face of the sacred. 
We actually do this liturgically, by the way, on Good Friday. We have something called the veneration of the Holy Cross. So the cross gets set out, and the priest actually takes off his shoes, comes out of the sanctuary, and does what we call the creep. He walks a couple steps, kneels down in front of the cross, and gets up and walks a couple more steps and kneels down, and then he kisses the cross as a symbol of reverence for that sacred space. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. This posture that Moses exhibits is something that should begin in our liturgical worship and spiral out into our daily lives. The awareness that we are in God's presence is why we genuflect before we get in or out of the pews. It's why we genuflect when we cross the center line. It's why we make the sign of the cross when our Lord and Savior is elevated during the Holy Communion. We recognize that we live in an enchanted world. It's a world that's being redeemed, a world that's always in the presence of God, and that that presence begins at the cross, begins at the altar, and works its way out. But of course, Moses is instructive for us in a negative way, too. He tries to resist God. I don't know what name I should tell them. So God gives them a name. I don't think they'll believe me. So God turns Moses' staff into a snake and back into the staff again as a sign. I'm not very good at speaking. So God promises to give him Aaron, but in the third time, it says God's wrath kindled against Moses. In other words, Moses was skating on thin ice. And so Moses eventually relents, but there's that resistance, and and all of us can identify this. God calls us to do something, and we can come up with a laundry list of 100 reasons why we're not the right person, it's not the right time, we are just not called to that thing. But we're never safer than when we're obeying what God has told us to do. Think about Jonah in this context. So the question for us is, what do we do with the keen awareness of God's presence? Do we allow it to change us? Do we allow it to affect everything about what we do? Or do we try to ignore it? Do we try to suppress it? Do we try to make sure that it doesn't inconvenience us too much? Do we come up with our excuses? How do we react when God gives us commands? If we follow the positive aspects of Moses' example from our reading this morning, we'll be attentive to his voice with an open posture that's willing to obey and will worship him with all of our hearts and minds and souls and bodies and strength. And I think we'll find, just like with Moses, our encounter with God will never leave us unchanged. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost,